Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Bleed Los Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by our good friends at TicketIQ.com. TicketIQ is a, uh, a reseller of tickets, but, you know, like StubHub and, and, uh, and those other guys, right? But the difference between them and their competition, what sets them apart, their whole thing is they want to save you money. So as an example, I used them this weekend for one of the games that I attended out here at Dodger Stadium East in Denver. And uh, I got third row behind the Dodgers dugout for $37 a ticket. When I went on the Rockies website, just to check out those same prices, those tickets were like $98 or something to that effect. So they saved me a lot of money. Uh, so, uh, so again, that's just an example of how much money they can save you. And if you want to save money through TicketIQ.com, if you go to DodgersBeat.com, which this podcast is a Dodgers Beat production, if you go to that website... There is a link tree that will have you, you know, have a bunch of stuff on there. One of them is Ticket IQ. Click on that. It'll direct you to their website. And, you you know, you can search out whatever tickets you want, whether it's at Dodger Stadium or anywhere else on the road like I did for the Rockies. And, uh, you know, you add them to your, your cart. And for being a loyal listener to this year's podcast, you'll save some even more. You'll save even more money. So, again, check them, check them out ticketiq.com huge thanks to them for the support as always terms and conditions do apply please see their website for more details again ticketiq.com dang i'm struggling today and we're also brought to you by bleedlos.com bleedlos.com is a fan apparel website that has all dodgers fan apparel that you can think of right now they have the joe kelly loteria shirt that is in stock ready to go so go check it out, bleedlos.com. If you use the promo code bleedlospod, you will save 10% on your purchase from that their website for being a loyal listener to this peer podcast. So again, bleedlos.com. It'll take you uh, to all the uh, the apparel, add it to the cart, add that code, save some money. As always, terms and conditions do apply. Please see their website for more details. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, bleedlospod. I'm sorry, bleedlos.com. So this week, we actually have two guests this week. We have Eric Himmelsbach Weinstein and Gustavo Arellano of the Los Angeles Times joining us this week. We actually go into uh, to, to break down and discuss all things for the documentary that they are dropping, that they've been dropping and are going to continue to drop, called Fernando Mania at 40. It's a great, great piece. Uh, they're, they're individual episodes. There's going to be a total of 12. Definitely recommend you check them out on YouTube. Uh, just literally look up for Nanomania and it'll pop up. Go and check them out. But in the interim, here is both Eric Himmelsbach Weinstein and Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times discussing all things for Nanomania at 40. Here we go. Hey fans, this is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your world champion Los Angeles Dodgers, and you are listening to the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts Alonso and Juan with the baby face gimmick in the sky, Roger. And this week, uh, I'm pretty stoked uh, to have the guests that we're, we're about to have 
even though I was too young to, uh, to, to really, rem- you know, to, I wasn't even alive when all this stuff started with uh, Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, it's still an important, in, in my opinion, an important part of Los Angeles history. And I know Juan kind of agrees to that. Uh, but this week we are joined uh, by the, uh, the, the LA Times guys, Eric Himmelsbach, Weinstein, and Gustavo Arellano, who are, uh, are, are dropping a, a Fernando Mania series uh, through the LA Times. Uh, Fernando Mania at 40. And, uh, and they join us this week. Guys, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. What's up, man? Well, let's just get right into it. Uh, Gustavo, I know you, uh, you know, in, in the, the series, or I'm sorry, the episodes that have dropped up to this point, which are, there's currently eight, 12 total is, uh, what's going to be coming. Um, you, you know, you, there's a lot of emphasis on the Los Angeles history, you know, the historical side of, of, uh, Fernando mania. And, and, and that is, in my opinion, something that gets short-sighted quite a bit, um, you know, cause obviously, you know, what Fernando did, you know, what he still is to not only the culture, but to Dodgers culture, obviously that's, you know, that that's lore in itself, but that, that kind of, you know, the, the historical side of everything that happened there on the ravine, you know, leading up to all that gets lost in the fray. I know you take pride in wanting to focus in on that. Uh, so tell me how, how important was that aspect of it for you not just going into the Fernando Valenzuela stuff. I always tell people, know your history. You become that much stronger of a person if you know where you came from, if you know the area where you're from, literally. People always take pride. Oh, yeah, I'm proud to be from, like, Boyle Heights. I'm proud to be from Santana. I'm proud to be from wherever. But, like, do you really know the history that goes along with it? So if you're going to be a Dodgers fan, and there's so many Dodgers fans here in Southern California, especially among Raza, and you don't know the history of Chavez Ravine, you don't know the history of all, even the LA sports history and all that, and all the, you know, the Choriceros and all those baseball teams that were around even before the Dodgers happened, then you're not the real Dodgers fan that you make yourself out to be. If you know that, and that's why I thought, I think Fernando Media at 40 is so great because it's teaching people this history, especially a lot of the youngsters, like younger people, even than us, you know, people in their 20s and their teens, seeing this stuff and saying like, oh, wow, I didn't know about Chavez Ravine. I didn't know about the O'Malley's. I didn't know about, like, you know, uh, the Olympic Auditorium with the boxing and just all this different history. And I think, at, I mean, the feedback that we're getting, they're like, thank you for telling us this history. It just makes me even that much more prouder to being a Dodgers fan. But now like wants me to, you know, as reporters, what you want is to not just satisfy someone, uh, someone's curiosity, but peak it. In other words, like this is the start. We started it now. Now you get to try to figure out what else you need to go get. Hey, Eric. Uh, so your background is in documentaries. You, uh, you, you have work that's been seen on VH1, uh, the Food Network Biography Channel, TLC. You're also Emmy nominated for, and here's a Southern California connection, the Marinovich Project for, for ESPN. How much of a, a sports fan were you uh, going into this? And how did the idea of pitching this documentary at Fernando Mania at 40, where did that come from? Did you pitch this or did someone approach you? Well, I actually did not pitch it because my, I, I talked to our sports editor, Chris Stone, a lot about video ideas. And the idea that I wanted to do was I wanted to do a deep dive into Donnie Moore, the Angels pitcher, and led him to, you know, Take his life and kill, uh, shoot his shoot his wife. Or take his life and shoot his wife. Um, and he said, "Why don't we do Fernando Mania instead?" 
Ay, ay, ay. Okay, so what, what was the serious conversation there? They were like, look, I, I think that's a little too of a down, too much of a downer. It sounds fascinating to me. I would love to hear more about Donnie Moore. But what was your response to that when he pitched Fernando Mania instead of Donnie Moore? Were you devastated? <laughs> I said, I'm kind of an Angels fan now. I was a Dodgers fan growing up. I remember Fernando Mania. I was in high school. Um, I wasn't devastated because I know there's not much. It's all about audience and people will respond to Fernando like they wouldn't respond to Donnie Moore. And, and I just ran with it. And I, I had seen the ESPN documentary that had come out and I thought they, it was a missed opportunity. And honestly, I thought the voices in that documentary were not appropriate for that story. And I, I felt like I want to get into the community and I want to hear lots of different people that were exposed to it. Uh, politicians, musicians, uh, all sorts of walk, walks of life from East LA. And I, and I feel like that's the story that we needed to tell. And I wanted to make sure that, that you know, that's, that's the real story. Why else tell a Fernando story at this point? Everybody knows the basics. And I couldn't agree with you more. And, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that a, a little later on. But I, I appreciate you calling out that ESPN 30 for 30 because I, I feel with, like you, it was a missed opportunity. Well, I will say one thing. I'll, one thing I did not understand is why are you using white filmmakers as your talking heads? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, give this man a prize. You know, he's, he's, he's dead on. And, and with that, Gustavo, uh, I know a, a huge, again, we, we kind of went over it there, you know, where, where you want that you want everyone to be aware of their history. And a huge part of it, obviously, is not having, uh, you know, white talking heads. You, you, you are, you know, the, the, the narrator, if you will, to a certain degree for this story. And, and let's, you know, no bones about it. Fernando's story is, is an incredible story to begin with, too. You know, not, not just the, the historical side of everything that, you know, happened with Los Angeles and, you know, early gentrification, all that jazz. Right. But yeah. well, the eminent domain, but you know, that's, that's a political conversation we can have, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, his story itself is, you know, that, you know, I, I'm a first generation, you know, uh, Mexican American. Um, you know, I know these guys are, are also, you know, you know, we're proud of our Latino heritage and those stories are kind of ingrained in our culture. You know, my parents came over here, made three bucks an hour, you know, my mom did whatever she could just to make it work so we could get out of the hood and then, you know, do better for ourselves. And that's kind of Fernando, but just on steroids because he's coming from the mother country. Except you know, not using steroids. Exactly. No <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> um, but, but it, you know, it, and overnight it happened the way that it did, right? And, and that's what's kind of crazy about it because, you know, to your point that you mentioned a little bit ago with the O'Malley's, you know, they, they, they embraced all of that as far as the Los Angeles culture goes. You, 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 you go to, to point that out. And I, I, and I know Juan appreciates it as well because he's a history fiend himself. It, that's a huge part of it. But for you, uh, you know, because you, you're, 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 I don't want to call you a content creator because that would be super <laughs> fucked up. No, <laughs> but you, I'm a you nerd. Know, you can call me a nerd though. No, I, and I don't even want to call you that. Because okay. be, just because you, your appreciation, I guess I should say, for for those sorts of things is huge for you. Um, I know your focal point was to get, you know, the 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 Rasa side out. Right. And, and uh, that's a huge part of it. 
but was there was for you at any point was it was it any any way of of i guess ruffling feathers or did you look at it as ruffling feathers with some of the stuff that you do to cover because it is i know it's kind of uncomfortable but we're kind of in a weird political climate with history anyway right now yeah you know, not with the not with the fernando mania project because eric was you know eric wrote the scripts took the lead and all of that honestly i was just a talking head in it i but when they approached me i was I was honored. I, I was absolutely honored to do something about Fernando. I mean, finally, my cousins would actually pay attention to something that I do, you know, because <laughs> they never do. They're not doing my clubs. They're not doing anything else. But, oh, wow, God, you know, they call me Gus. Of course, only they could call me Gus. Although the the ones from uh, the ones who grew up in East L.A. and Montebello, they call me Guti. So like, oh, yeah, Guti, you know, Guti's doing something about the Dodgers and Fernando. And that's really cool. I we look. We just told the story. Uh, you know that that that's all it was. We told the story. Eric told. You know, just you know, it, as it's unveiling. Like I don't have a problem with <laughs> with talking whitehead, so to speak. So if say let's just make something up. If like Rick Riley of all people, who was like my all time favorite sports columnist of, of the modern era. You know, back in the days, Grantland Rice. But if he said like, oh, I want to do this Fernando project, I wouldn't blink. But Rick better know his stuff. And that's the thing. If you're going to tell the story of Fernando, you got to know what Sonora means. You got to know, uh, the, you know that the, the significance of Tommy Lasorda knowing some Spanish and then Mike Socha learning Spanish to be able to talk to Fernando. You got to know all of those nuances. The 30 for 30, I don't have so much of a problem with it, but it does not even compare to what we've done here because we have all those nuances where people see, yeah, like I know exactly what you're talking about. I know about our Aragon, the original golden boy. I know about the Olympic auditorium. Oh shit. You got little Willie G from the midnighters, the pioneering Chicago. Only the LA times would have little Willie G talking about Fernando Valenzuela or the Dodgers and all of that. And that's why I think our documentary is as great as it is because you do have people who know that world and give credit to Eric. He, you know, Eric's the one who booked these people. And I remember when I saw, you know, I think Eric's awesome. He's my colleague. But when I, when I started seeing like the transcripts, I'm like, okay, Scott Osler, that makes sense. Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of LA. Yeah, cool. Of course. Little Willie G like that fucking Richard Montoya from culture clash. Okay. This guy Bacho knows his shit. <laughs> hey, Eric, um, I think very easily you guys could do a Fernando Mania at 50, at 60, at 70. Why is it that his story has, aside from the fact that when you go to the stadium, half of the stadium, and, and, and I think I'm being generous here because I, I mean, not generous, but I, I think I'm lowballing here. The majority of that stadium is still wearing Valenzuela jerseys. Mm -hmm. Why does Valenzuela, I mean, you grew up in it. Why does his story stick with us? Well, because he he was the face of the community. The Dodgers did not have someone who looked like him before, and they and they did not have uh, that kind of fan base before. And again, a lot of it goes back to resentment from Chavez Ravine. They didn't want to to see the Dodgers because they felt like the Dodgers had betrayed them. And when the Dodgers are doing things like trotting out a Native American guy from New Mexico and saying, "Here's our Mexican." And, and even the pitcher himself, Phil Ortega was saying, no, 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 that's not, I'm not a Mexican, but the Dodgers insisted on that. And it, it was just a marketing thing that, that went wrong. Well, um, it, it, it was so bad also, like, cause my dad, 
him and the Steels, they came to the United States late 60s, early 70s. So they they were Dodgers fans before Fernando. So they could still talk about Ron Say and Steve Garvey and Steve Yeager. And they all thought that Davy Lopes, first of all, they'd say Davy Lopez. And right. so they thought Davy Lopez was Mexican. So like, okay, like the community was striving for something, anything. And Lopes was great, but, you know, he wasn't the best. And I, I think with Fernando, why he continues to resonate is because it wasn't just representation. He was the best of the best. Rookie, Cy Young, World Series. Like, we Mexican-Americans have never had someone like that ever, ever since. Before or since. No one, you know, on that level. Like, you know, Adrian Gonzalez, like, you, we've had all-stars. They've even played for the Dodgers. But not, like, the best of the best ended up ends up becoming a champion and when you have that something like that that will resonate with you these are the people whose stories we tell years and years and years down the line I, uh, Gustavo I wanted to, to ask you because as a kid I heard all those stories about you know the Olympic auditorium you know told this mother that happened there I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm too young you know I, I just turned 35 so I you know all that's you know my dad all right we get it Alonzo you're young <laughs> dude we get it not Listen. every episode you gotta come out with this <laughs> Okay, boomer. Los jovencitos. <laughs> yeah, los los morritos. Los uh, morritos, that's classic. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, I heard all those stories, right? But I never got to experience it because I was so young. You know, for 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 those guys and, and kids, really in that generation that I fall in, you know, I know you kind of go over it in that story. But explain the importance of the Olympic Auditorium to La Raza, and and just everything that entails it, if you will. Oh, it was like holy grounds. Like there there is no contemporary now because you have to you have to remember this is the 60s this is the 70s you're getting all these immigrants young men our tios and tios imagine your your parent your dad and your tios in their 20s in other words even younger than you a youngster like young 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 ready to try this madre but they're working class mexican immigrants they love sports they love boxing they want to see lucha libre they want to see whatever and this is not like going to staples center now like i have not gone in years because I'm a cheapskate. Well, a price for a cheap C is like probably 50 bucks or whatever. No, you go buy, you go you know, for a dollar if that. And you're seeing these Mexican boxers wailing at each other. You're seeing Lucha Libra. You're even going in there to see uh, some roller derby every once in a while, just doing in that stuff. So it becomes like part of the Southern California Me Mexicano iconography, just like the Cantinas of East LA, the Yost Theater in Santana. There's like these uh, these legacies. You're not going to go to Dodger Stadium because, yeah, the Dodgers is the big team, but, you know, the tickets are going to be more expensive. And not only that, like, it, like, like I should ask my dad. I don't think I've ever asked him. Like they would see the games on television for sure. And of course, you know, Jaime Harin, uh, who I always think is so underrated in terms of uh, greasing those wheels to make Fernando possible in terms of just like getting that earlier generation, like my dad's of like listening to Dodgers games, but you're not going to the stadium just because like, eh, it's not really for us. You know, why do we want to go to a place? What is it like 50,000 just to see a baseball game where we'd rather go to the Olympic auditorium. I think the capacity there was smaller, like 10,000 or whatever for cheaper and just like a pistear. And, and, you know, especially with the Dodgers. And I don't think any of us who grew up in the eighties in Southern California, Eric can kind of get it. Cause he's, He's a little bit older than us, not that much older than us. I went to the Olympic Auditorium on Thursday night and watched boxing with my dad. I went oh, that's to cool. And, so, and, Dan and Danny Little Red Lopez was the shit. He was <laughs> everybody. So, yeah, I, I remember what it was like. 
Yeah, you know, but that, that was an era where you still had, like, it wasn't as stratified as today. You had those working class, but then if, if Eric was going to the Olympic Auditorium then, that means he grew up working class. He wasn't going to, like, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion or that world. So you had that mixture. It wasn't just raza. It was, like, multicultural, this madre. People just want to see the boxing, wrestling. And then, of course, later on in the late 70s, once punk starts coming up, punk, you know, once the heyday of the, the athletic life of the Olympic Auditorium starts sort of fading away, you start getting into the music part of it. It's, it's just hollowed ground. It's it's sad that it's not there anymore. Well, it's I mean, it's there as a facility, but it's not there like the, the, the ghosts are there and when they should actually be filled with still boxing and all that. I will add, too, that growing up in the late 70s in a I grew up in a town called Sepulveda in the North Valley that's now called North Hills. And I went to Monroe High School. And so it was a mixed, you know, it was a pretty diverse crew there. And the, the biggest thing was for us to go to somebody's house when direct TV or on TV was showing like Sugar Ray Leonard against Roberto Duran or something like that. It was a big deal. We'd all pitch in five bucks to cover for, you know, the closed circuit. And it was, it was an event. You guys didn't have the black box back then? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Mexicans got him in the 90s. And, and to your point, too, about uh, about Olympic Auditorium, you know, the, from the music side, that's actually, you know, my dad told me all that stuff, right? Echando desmadre going down the Thursday nights, getting fucked up, maybe getting into a tussle, todo el pedo. But uh, what, the way I learned about the Olympic Auditorium and some of its history was because I, I, you know, the first music stuff I did was punk rock. So I, you know, I learned that like the subhumans did shows there, you know, the circle shirt jerks did shows there, uh, GBH, DRI, like all those legacy punk rock bands that I grew up listening to, obviously skateboarding in Los Angeles, all that jazz, you know, w- was incorporated. So it's, to your point, uh, I just wanted to point out, Gustavo, it's, it's hallowed ground and it's crazy that more people don't appreciate it. And and that uh, for me, like hallowed ground is a big deal, right? Because obviously, you know, for my generation, kind of the, the first eye-opening music thing there was when Rage Against the Machine did uh, the Olympic Auditorium for the Battle of Los Angeles. Yep. And I'm envious of everyone that went to that show and opened the pit, but here I am. Um, but it's one of those things where we're hallowed, you know, the, the historical, uh, it, it, you know, mo- most people now it's like, oh, it's historical nuance, but they don't appreciate the hallowed ground that that is kind of upon us. And it, it kind of sucks because that's one thing that's weird about growing up. Like that sort of stuff just kind of goes away. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very Southern California thing to have these places with all this history and then just get torn up. I mean, that's what Chavez Ravine was. Here's this historic barrio and the city of Los Angeles comes in, and just kicks everyone out. And then once you have this land, like, oh, I guess we could put a baseball stadium on there. And that legacy was basically wiped off the history books also in Southern California until the past couple of years. Eric Nussbaum's book does a really great job stealing home about it. And of course it was known in, in, in Chicano circles, but in the Southern California, como se dice, the, the, the narrative of Southern California, it was just erased. It's like, Hey, the Dodgers are in town. Let's all be happy and whatnot. And, and if another many at 40 gets to that erasure, but also gets to why it's important to remember that and bring that back to life. Hey, Eric, uh, Let's uh, take us behind the curtain here. I, I want to know how the sausage is made, or at least give a chance for our listeners. You're the series producer, and you're also the writer. I, I think to some of our listeners, it might sound a little weird to hear a writer on a documentary. But could you go over the process of what you mean, what it means by being a writer on a documentary? Well, we use the term loosely, mainly because it. I wrote the voiceover for it, and that was that was about. And and also you're you're writing it in the sense that you're putting it together. You're finding the sound bites, you're finding the stories, 
and you're organizing it so that it makes sense. And it's funny because at one point we were talking about doing 40 episodes for 40 years, which sounds terrifying. It is incredible. <laughs> and there were people at the company that were really excited about that possibility. And it just wasn't realistic. But um, yeah, you just call, you do your research. You, you call these people up for like for Little Willie G, for example, I, I reached out to Roy Cooter, who was a musician who did an album called Chavez Ravine. Uh, and it was basically the story of what had happened through various voices and through music. And he said, you got to talk to little Willie G. He's, he's the one you need to reach out to. And he had, he had great stories. And I'd love to spend more time with him just talking about everything else. So it's almost like detective work, isn't it? It's oh, like you absolutely. discover yeah. something that leads you on to something else. And I think as you're, you're putting the piece together, it really is a puzzle, right? And you're just putting everything together and you go, hey, I need something here. I'm missing something here. I got to go get it. Well, here's a good example, too. We uh, reached out to this uh, gentleman, Richard Santian, who's a part of the uh, Latino Baseball History Project. And at the end of our interview, he said, you should talk to Ray Lara because Ray Lara is good friends with Fernando. And I really think that opened a lot of doors for us with Fernando because Ray was, is, you know, he goes to breakfast with Fernando every day. They're super tight. And having that, that uh, on our side, it really, it really went a long way because Fernando doesn't like to do a lot of these kinds of things. Um, he just rather just stay in the shadows and, and he'd rather be golfing at the Montebello golf course. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, to follow up on that, how did you guys get him to participate in that? Because of what you just mentioned, he is reluctant. He is press shy. I, I feel at the beginning of the year, I mean, at the beginning of his career, I think he could say he could lean on the fact that he didn't speak the language and that's why, but we all know he could speak the language now. So I just think he doesn't like doing these things. How did you guys convince him to, to participate in this? Well, it's a long story. And getting working with the Dodgers was kind of complicated, but ultimately they did uh, cooperate with us. And I just had to keep bothering the Dodgers PR and saying, hey, we, didn't get, we did not get Fernando, the interview with Fernando until after the first episode was out. Oh, And we got, and we got 20 minutes. Oh, okay, that makes sense now. <laughs> and also, during the pandemic, it's difficult because Fernando wanted to wait until he'd gotten his, his vaccination. Mm -hmm. And we had to find a location close to his home, and it had to be outdoors. And that was a problem with all of this. We had to shoot everything out, outside. Uh, and some people didn't participate because of that. You were talking about punk rock earlier. There was a woman who had initially consented, Alice Bag from the Bags. She became a Dodgers fan because of Fernando Valenzuela. But I think she thought we were going to be doing a phone interview. And, and that, that's what ended that. But I would have loved to have had her. She would have been great. I reached out to a lot of musicians. And, uh, and, and to kind of follow up on, on the, the Dodgers PR thing, uh, how, how tricky was that for you to navigate without uh, uh, stepping on anyone's toes, if that makes sense? Um, you just have to be diplomatic in every single case. Whenever there's a, an obstacle, you just have to ignore it and go back to them in a couple of weeks. Uh, the historian Mark Langle was really, I think that's his name, um, was super helpful. Uh, it's, 
I think the, the, the Dodgers have a history with the LA Times that probably isn't completely applicable to this, but they didn't make it easy for us. But ultimately, I think they made us sweat a little bit, but ultimately they cooperated. I think that's how they wanted to do it. Which is unfortunate because back, you know, we basically made it possible for the Dodgers to come in here by, you know, back in the days when the Chandler family that founded the LA Times ruled all of Los Angeles. And so the Dodgers would not have been able to get into Los Angeles without the Chandler saying, it's okay. So come on, Dodgers, like us a little bit more. You know, this leads me into, you know, we are not a Homer podcast. We're all Dodger fans here, but I also feel we call out the Dodgers when they need to be called out. That being said, if there is a villain in this piece, and I would love to ask you guys because I need to be corrected if I'm just reading too much into it. But for me, there were some moments with Walter O'Malley that made me cringe. And in particular, the moment where he was asking Jaime Jarrín, when are you going to find me a Mexican? It felt very exploitive. And maybe what it is is just, just the reality of capitalism you know, they, it says throughout the piece, you know, your audience, uh, it, baseball should reflect the demographic of your community. Mm-hmm. So there's that section in Brooklyn where the majority of the Dodger players were Italian. And then you get to the point in the 60s where a lot of the Dodger players, they had a lot more African-American players. So they wanted to, you know, tap into that Mexican demographic and it just really felt like they were using Valenzuela as just a pawn. And to this day, I feel they kind of patronized him. The fact that they haven't retired his jersey, I think is despicable. Yeah. Now, they're going to use the excuse that because he wasn't in the Hall of Fame, that it's not going to retire him. But you got Junior Gilliam's number out there. So if the Dodgers are going to wait for Valenzuela to die, for them to retire his number, I think that's messed up because they don't give the number out. Nobody wears 34. So uh, I went on a little uh, soapbox there. I'm sorry. But is Walter O'Malley a, a villain in this piece or am I just reading too much into it? I think they're all villains. I think Major League Baseball in general was they, all the owners were villains. And they wanted people based on what would be good for business. And that was the bottom line. They weren't, I don't think they were particularly sensitive to anything else, but how could, what would be good for business? And I, the one thing I will point out, I'm not going to say whether Walter O'Malley was or was not a villain, but all I need to know is when we, we touch upon this later on in the series, Fernando Valenzuela was released in 1990 after a game in Monterrey, Mexico against Teddy Higuera, a showcase between Milwaukee Brewers and the Dodgers. As soon as that game was over, they got whatever they needed to get out of Fernando released before the season started, because that was a spring training game. But let, let, yeah, let's not forget the other villain, Tommy Lasorda, who freaking pitched Fernando <laughs> to death. I mean, his arm to death at the very least. Like, I, I know he passed. They're gonna away. come. At, they're gonna at you, Gustavo. Yeah, go they're gonna it. at you oh, on Twitter when go, they hear go this. Go for it. Go for it. All those I Tommy have, defenders. You I, know they're coming I, at you. I, I, it's sadly. I love sports. I love sports. And that's why also it's so great for me to participate on this because as a Metro columnist, I'm usually, I mean, I'm writing about right now, I'm writing about the drought and I, you know, I wrote about COVID and all that. So rarely do I get to talk about sports, but I had to just bite my like fist when Tommy died because I just wanted to unload 
on all the things that I think about Time of the Sword and all the stories, by the way. Um, uh, my cousin, uh, my, my, my cousin Placido, his wife grew up in the same neighborhood where Tommy Lasorda lived. And well, he's dead, so you can't defame the dead. But he, uh, she said that he was just a complete asshole of a neighbor. Like, like Jack Clark, actually, I can say this with Jack Clark, actually, uh, was it Jack Clark or somebody, but they did a story or he told, I think it was men's journal during an interview. It, no, maybe it was Bobby Valentine, but so like some baseball, like per personality from the eighties said that one time he was at Tommy Lasorda's home, some kid told off Tommy and Tommy kicked his ass. Like this was not a pleasant person. So the, him throw, you know, just overworking Fernando. All of his pictures, all oral and all of that. Like to me, the villain is Tommy Lasorda. But also, you know, outside of the baseball world, let's say who the real villains are. The you know the the conservatives of Los Angeles in the 1950s who demonized Frank Wilkinson, the man who wanted to build the uh, the public housing in Chavez Ravine, deemed it a communist plot. Then said, "Oh, let's bring on the Dodgers and all that." It, it, it's a story. Yeah, uh, Eric said it best. It's a story with many, many villains. But and we should call out those villains. And calling out those villains, by the way, doesn't make you any less of a Dodgers fan. I'm not a Dodgers fan myself. I root for the Dodgers. I respect the Dodgers. My all my cousins are. But if you are just a boomer uh, and like the boomer and sort of not not an old boomer, but just like hey, hey or you know, Homer is the other way to put it, then you're a child because children are the people who will only unconditionally love like adults we know we accept the good with the bad and then from there we make our decision whether we're going to root for you or not you know i will say this i think tommy shortening fernando's career is a valid argument and i'm not going to push back on you on that one for every story about what a jerk tommy is you're going to get a story about how great tommy is oh, so yeah. I, you know but uh, one thing i do want to follow up on you because you just uh triggered some trauma on me because you mentioned <laughs> jack clark my first memory as a Dodger is that NLCS <laughs> between the Dodgers and the Cardinals in 85. Okay. That's, that's the first thing I remember as being, you know, because I'm a Dodger fan because of Valenzuela, my father, my grandfather all started watching these games because a Mexican was pitching. Yeah. So of course, as a kid, even though I grew, I was raised in orange County. I had the angels right down the street. It's exactly what these guys are talking about. There's nobody I could relate to in the as the Angels back in the day. Wally Joyner did nothing for me, okay, but Valenzuela did. And then when Jack Clark hit that home run, there was this interview I heard with Lasorda where someone called in, and this is years after he had already retired, and a fan called in and said, Tommy, I love you. Why did you pitch to Jack Clark? And Tommy lost his shit on did. the radio. Yeah. He went, what do you mean? Why did I pitch to Jack Clark? And then he went to go defend the other guy who haunts me in my dreams. Tom needed fear. Okay, I get, I'm getting off the sofa. <laughs> did, did, did they then ask him about Dave Kingman? <laughs> That's a great one. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, go on YouTube and, and just type in Tommy Lasorda rants. Uh, we, we, <laughs> sorry, I'm just thinking of Juan jumping off his soapbox because the Tim Ninian Fear thing is a, is that's, that's, that's his, that's his, uh, that's his demon. That's, that's, sí, pobrecito. Yeah, I, no, I've never forgotten it. It's, it's tra It's trauma. Whenever I see Kenley Jansen, I just see Ninian Fear. So he pulls out the rosary, Torpedo, I suppose. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a tactic. Uh, we, we have, uh, Eric Himmelsbach, Weinstein, and Gustavo Arellano from the LA Times joining us. Uh, 
I, I was curious of one thing. So in one point too, to, to make a, a, to Juan's uh, point that happened a few moments ago, uh, the Mexican league has retired the 34. So I think uh, personally myself, I think it's incredibly uh, despicable as well that they haven't retired Fernando uh, Fernando's number, but I digress. I just, I'm just the guy on a podcast. Um, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I was curious, Gustavo, um, when, when you were going through and, and kind of, you know, reliving the history, if you will, uh, obviously you're, you're, you get fired up. Were you fired up going through and, and just, you know, kind of trying to restrain a little bit to tell the story? Or was it one of those where it's like, okay, we're just, we're just going to let it all out now. We're just going to, we're just going to air the grievances. Like it's best <laughs> no, it's the Los Angeles times. So we have to be objective as Eric more than me. Because, you know, as a columnist, they give me way more leeway, but it's still the L.A. Times. I'm not going to go off and go through all these different things. But just in seeing that history, yeah, no, like what really angered me, Frank Wilkinson, definitely, because a man was labeled a communist and his life was ruined. And all he wanted to do was give, you know, better housing. And there was a bit of patronizing in Frank, obviously, to the Chicanos who lived there in Chavez Ravine. They were happy where they were. What, What do they call it? Poor man's paradise. Like they were perfectly happy with their communities. They did not need to leave. And here comes this white man promising it them all this stuff but just reading that also just um for doing it for me it just it wasn't even triggering it was just good memories like and, and i wrote a column about it actually it came out on the front page of the times but just talking about how you know growing up we were ah you know uh and you know i i translate as lancea like because the, the, the official name or word or term for pitching in spanish is lanzar like lance lanzar but my dad says a pichar. All Mexicans say pichar. You just say pichar. So they would say, mijo, a pichar como Fernando. Then you do the whole thing. Uh, and even though I'm a right-hander, you just did that. So it was just, it brought back, back specific memories of being six and seven years old, growing up in Anaheim, right there outside Jack's Market with all the, you know, all, all the men from uh, from Jerez, where uh, Zacatecas, where my family's from, both my mom and my dad and everyone just, even if you didn't like, they, and they weren't talking baseball all the time, but they knew what Fernando was. And I, I mean, this is 86, 87. So Fernando's year, best year is already behind him, but he's still this icon. So doing this was just a pleasure because it just brought back all these warm memories. All the rants and all of that, I've just, you know, they've always been there. Like, so this, for, to me, this was a joyous project to participate in, even as if, even as we talked about serious topics and, you know, brought that history in. Hey, Eric, you know, we mentioned this earlier and the, the, we, the 30 for 30 that ESPN did on, on, on Fernando. I, and we had mentioned the fact that the voice that we saw or we heard on that kind of really didn't match with the story that we were seeing. How did you go about finding the voices for this? Because you have an eclectic, not only you have you musicians, but you have playwrights, Richard Montoya, who is from Culture Clash, who wrote a play called Chavez Ravine. So for those who have not seen that play, whenever that play it was recently playing down at the taper a few years ago, if it ever does get revived, I strongly encourage everyone to go see it because you will get a lot more of the story especially what Gustavo was talking about in terms of, uh, of the villains. But you had other playwrights like Luis Alfaro on there. You had Danny Trejo. How did you go about, because I will say this, it does make a difference when the, the faces that you see talking about Fernando look like Fernando as opposed to white faces. Well, that's the whole point. Why, why bother doing the story unless you're going to tell that story? 
there's no other reason to do it. And I just had a long list of people that are closely connected to Los Angeles in a lot of different ways. Um, I know I, I wanted to get Richard Alatorre. There were a lot of people I tried to go after, like the guys on Los Lobos. I know David Hidalgo is a Dodgers fan, but they don't like to do interviews. So there, there was a lot of different avenues I went down. I just wanted to get all walks of life. And I don't want to get the usual suspects. I never liked to, to go about it that way. Um, I want people who felt involved in that particular, whatever story we're telling, that aren't what you'd expect. Like you have to use the journalists. Like, the white voices are all LA Times journalists. And, mm -hmm. and then one, one musician who ironically did the song, Fernando, who, who grew up in LA, Steve Wynn. Um, oh, so he did the theme song then for the piece. And we interviewed him and he's gonna be featured in a later episode about uh, artists who've been influenced by Fernando. Okay. Um, but it, it touched him too, but we, we made a choice not to use him elsewhere in the series because it, it, it would have felt out of place. And I wanted it to be consistent and I wanted, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be the people who felt that story the most. That's all it, went, it came down to. And I just wanted it to be people you don't expect to hear from. And who, who was, and, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And I just think that's what interests me when I, when I have to do these retrospective stories because you often hear the same people over and over again and the same anecdotes over and over again. But, uh, you know, you never knew that Willie G's dad was working for the utility in LA and he was assigned to work at Chavez Abin and he, he wanted to quit. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. That's, 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 those are the stories I wanted to hear. I know you mentioned like the guys from Los Lobos and, and those sorts of guys. Who was at that top of that list that you, you wish so dearly could have contributed to the interview process for the documentary? For some weird reason, I really wanted to get Vicente Romo, who was the first real Mexican to pitch for the Dodgers because he pitched in 68 and he also pitched with Fernando in 82. And I wanted to hear what his experience was like being sort of the, the pioneer. Um, who else didn't we get? There were, there were some baseball players, like Mike Sosha. I wish I could have gotten Mike Sosha. And I went through various channels to, to get him and he just never responded. So she's a, so I worked in the angel system and I, uh, a fun fact, I did not know he spoke Spanish until he punked a bunch of us that he spoke <laughs> Uh, he, uh, uh, Alfredo Amezaga, who's a Mexican baseball player played in their system. Uh, got picked up by them. I was kind of his right-hand guy for a while. And the whole reason was obviously because he didn't speak English. And uh, we were literally, Sosh was giving us orders at spring training uh, to the face and everything when he literally could have told us in Spanish. And then just one day randomly, he just told us a bunch of stuff in Spanish. Had no idea he spoke Spanish. That's still one of my favorite things. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but uh, but, but Sosh, I, I feel like Sosh also is kind of uh, like a uh, he's, he's an integral part of my humble opinion because he learned Spanish so he could work with Fernando and also, you know, obviously to help him out in the clubhouse, stuff like that, because during that time, you know, being a red ass was a real thing. You know, everyone was, was a hard ass. Everyone was trying to get theirs. And, and, you know, obviously there wasn't the money that is in the game now. So everyone's just trying to, to do the thing. And I so dearly wish that you guys would have been able to do that, uh, you know, with Sosh, just because of how I'm sure the stories that he has about, uh, about El Toro is, is just non, 
Yeah, yeah, it would have been next level. But uh, you bring up a point of, of I was actually going to ask you about Vicente Romero, and you answered my question, so I'm kind of bummed out about that. But uh, uh, Juan, I, I will digress to you because that threw me off completely because I was actually going to ask. Don't about worry, I, 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 I got you. Got, <laughs> Thank uh, you. One of my the episode of Valenzuela in the media, I couldn't help. I, I and I guess this is maybe just timing, but I couldn't help but think of the Shohei Otani. And the Stephen A. Smith episode that happened earlier. Now, we whether it's racist or not, I, 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 I'm sure it plays an aspect in it. But for me, what was most, what upset me the most about that comment was this is a global sport. But the fact that Stephen A. Smith was basically saying that he needed to learn English. Mind you, everyone else around the world speaks more than one language. It's just us here in the United States that we can only focus on English. What I, what I wanted to ask you guys, do you see... Otani was just dominating this week, not only because of the Stephen A. Smith story, but then what he did in the, in, in the All-Star game. What happened with Valenzuela in 81, was that a local story? Or was that something that affected the country nationwide, what Valenzuela was doing? And what do you guys think is the difference between the way Otani is handling it and the way Valenzuela handled it in 81? Well, I, with Fernando, he was a cultural phenomenon and it was nationwide. We, we talk about in the series how anytime he would show up, the attendance would go through the roof on the road everywhere people are showing up to see who this guy was because again he was the best pitcher in baseball at the time he was dominating in the historic role and also he was from a, a community that has been long not just long maligned in american culture but also hated you know this is something that i've devoted most of my career to responding to um he ended up, you know, Mexico and the United States has fought multiple wars. Mexico ended up uh, losing half of its terrain to the United States all the way back in 1848. But people still remember Mexico and the U.S. share a border. Mexicans keep coming into the United States. Uh, a lot of Americans don't like us. And then to we've always been thought of as, you know, the stereotypes, thieves, lazy, all of that. And now to see one of them just dominate, you're like, wow, you got to pay respect. Shohei, I think, is different because First and foremost, he's Japanese, which the community is nowhere near as big as Mexican communities, not as spread out nationwide. Um, and all, and I just had this conversation uh, today with someone. As a player, pitcher, and batter doing both, he's great. He's incredible. But he's not the best batter in baseball, and he's not the best pitcher in baseball. So he doesn't have, like, he doesn't dominate that, you know, he does. he's not dominating the way Fernando is. Also, the Angels. I last I checked, well, there were two games over 500, whatever. They're always wasting, although David Fletcher slowly like moving them somewhere. So that'll be interesting. And also, you know, there's Los Angeles, you know, despite what the Angels call themselves, they're in Anaheim. And I'm born and raised, very proud Anna Crimer, but Anaheim <laughs> is not LA. LA Anna, the, it's not going to have that cachet. And then finally, also the teams. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. They're royalty. They are, you know, one of the top three teams in baseball, historically so, going back, you know, over 100 years, really. The Angels, they're still the Angels. People think of the Angels before Shohei. They would think of, oh, Pujols and his horrible contract, Mike Trout, the best player in baseball, just wasting his, the, his prime years on a crappy team. And do they still have the rally monkey? So, and then the final point, point I'll make, Shohei's still not a cultural phenomenon. 
Japanese Americans, you know, of course, I, there's still, you know, I, I, again, the population of people of Japanese descent in this country is nowhere near where the United States is. But Japanese Americans have not been looking for a savior for a long, like, or a cultural icon for a long, long time. I mean, you kind of had something with Hideo Nomo when he pitched it back in the 90s, but people were more- Do you think of- Ichiro, Ichiro put a dent in that? And that's why Shohei is not hitting as hard because we're coming off of Ichiro? Ichiro, I think though, he, he was, you know, one of the best players in the game. But again, same thing. He was up in Seattle. Seattle actually has a, one of the largest Japanese communities in the United States and a historic one as well. But in Seattle, people historically have not thought of it as a sports town or any of that. So he didn't rain down like that cultural thing. And again, Japanese, Japanese historically, of course, they suffered one of the worst injustices in American history with the incarceration of them during World War II. But after that, then they got turned into the model minority. Mexicans were in 2021. We're still hated. In the 80s, we were even more hated. This is a time of rising like illegal alien invasion. Fernando really truly was that savior that the Japanese community has never needed. So Shohei falls into that. He's like... He's a talk of baseball. He's still not the talk of Southern California yet. I, uh, I'm of the mantra of you got to bring their flowers while they're still here to people, right? Um, whether it's, you know, sports, in life, your friends, whatever. Uh, Valenzuela has, you know, he's been thrown in the Hispanic Heritage Baseball Hall of Fame. You, you know, I know he wasn't in 05 or something like that, the, the Latino Legends team. And then I, I believe he was enshrined in the Caribbean baseball hall of fame sorry that word always throws me off for some weird reason um but uh and obviously you know we talked about it a minute ago the dodgers you know from everything i know out of respect they don't circulate the 34 but they've not retired it um you know in in mexico the league has has retired the number do you guys think and, and i'll start with you eric do you guys think that fernando has gotten his you know his flowers you know to a certain degree or do you think that he has been in fact kind of stepped over and disrespected to a certain degree I think it's somewhere in the middle. Obviously, they employ him, so they think there's some value to having him around. But I don't think they recognize really what he accomplished and what he's meant to the franchise and and how he's expanded the fan base. There are a lot of things. I think Fernando understands that, too. I think he's got – I think there's a little bit of ambivalence with the Dodgers. Obviously, it's great to be employed. He gets to live in L.A. He does get to play golf at Montebello, whatever. It's, It's a pretty cushy schedule. But I mean, this—he should be lionized. He should have a statue. And same yeah. question to you, Gustavo. Yeah. Um. I. It's funny. Before doing this series, I was not of the opinion that Fernando's jersey should be retired. I've always been like, if you're going to retire, like, don't be like the Angels who will retire anyone for any excuse. Jimmy Reese, God bless you, Jimmy Reese, but you did not need your number retired or who else Otros pendejos allá with the angels Gustavo coming in hot with the angel slander on this episode <laughs> it's not, I, it's didn't not realize, I didn't realize the animosity was there Shit, it, my it, bad. it's not my bad. it's not slander if it's true you know i love gene autry fungo hitter yeah yeah <laughs> but come on but so i so with fernando look he's not in the hall of fame he had an amazing one year an awesome stretch of a couple of years but at the end you know because of tommy lasorda among others he petered out someone actually you want to talk about trip some the the spanish language broadcaster for the st louis cardinals i do not know his name but he follows me on twitter and he sent me a picture he's like i have 
was it him? But he's like, I have an autographed jersey of Fernando with the Cardinals. I'm like, oh my God, I completely forgot he was with the Cardinals. But like, is a hol- is someone worthy of a number being retired when you're ending your career with the Cardinals? I didn't think so. But doing this documentary, really thinking about the impact, not just with the Mexican impacts, but also the impact that Fernando had on the Dodgers. And yes, we talked about earlier how the Dodgers were such an ethnic team, you know, going back into, you know, in, in the Brooklyn era, you know, with the Italian players, the Jewish players, uh, you know, the Irish players and all of that, very much like Brooklyn. But Fernando really opened it up for that international scene, opened up baseball. Really, I mean, we had our Clementes and our, uh, you know, uh, Mike Guayars and all these former Latino players of the past. But Fernando really was that key. And also, I I think this is a very under uh, underappreciated point that what Fernando did, the Dodgers realized with Fernando is not just about what the it's not just about the what we put out on the field. We need to be out there in the community as well. We need to have our players out there helping out the kids, creating these RBI uh, ballparks, you know, in underserved communities and all that. And I think they I really think they. Finally, that that light turned in on them after Fernando. So after seeing all that, my you know our colleague Dylan Hernandez wrote a story about why Fernando's jersey should be retired. And now I'm like, yeah, you know what? It's it's right. I I, I do think I do think his his number should be retired. Sometimes and going back to the Angels, sometimes it's not always about numbers, but it's about the legacy you left to the team. It's about the like changing the culture. Like, you know, the team culture, not so much like the, the culture outside, but both of them. So, yeah, Fernando should be retired. Fernando pitched two games for the Angels. Yes, he did. I was I was at that first one. I was. Forty-some thousand of us Angels were not doing crap in the early 1990s, but my dad, my uncles, we all showed up to see Fernando. He did not win, but we we're so proud of him. We were all that, that's the thing with Terrasa. We've always been proud of him. Didn't matter if he was with the Padres or with the Cardinals. We to this day. You mentioned Fernando, it's like electricity in the air. You get nothing but a smile on your face. Always a smile with him. I have to say, so, what, let me ask what, you this. Can I real quick before you ask one? That was yeah. very savage of you, Eric. I really appreciate what you just did. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Look, we are now 40 years removed from this, right? And I, everything that you just said was that in terms of his contribution. Look, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, I think the majority of the fans in that stadium are Latinos. They're, they're Latinx, whether they're Mexican or, or anything like that. And every time I go to a game, they'll always show clips in between of Dodgers legends, and it'll be Fernando Valenzuela. The mariachi music starts playing, and everybody you know starts losing their shit. But is there going to come a time, and I, that's just why I think it's important, that, how important this series is, is there going to be a, a point where some people aren't even going to know Valenzuela like I sit there and I of course I realize the importance of Jackie Robinson but I never saw Jackie Robinson play I, I I saw the clips is Jackie Robinson more important to me than Valenzuela no I saw Valenzuela play I saw what he what he did are we going to get to a point where they're going we're going to go up to kids and going man Fernando Valenzuela and they're going to be like who are we going to even be playing baseball in 20 years? I don't know. <laughs> well, if Robert Manfred is still the commissioner of Major League Baseball, then I would say no. There it is. Was there waiting is. for it. There it is. There it is. That's hilarious. No, it's inevitable. Like, or, or is Fernando one of these icons that have transcended sports? Like Babe Ruth. I remember years ago, this is like 91, Sports Illustrated 
did their all-time baseball team. I, I think this was in honor of their, that would have been like their, not 50 of those, 50, 60s, maybe like 40th anniversary issue, whatever. It was, it was an anniversary issue. So they did their like, not, you know, their, their all-time team. And so they, for right field, they picked uh, Babe Ruth over Hank Aaron. And they said, look, nothing against Hank Aaron, but when was the last time someone described a home run as erroneous? No, they call it Ruthian. Like you have certain players, like a magic to like just transcend the sport. They don't end up, you know, you have the players who are Hall of Famers that only the 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 diehard fans are going to remember. And you have this Duke Snyder. He was a, he was a king. He was a king. And now only the most diehard people remember who Duke Snyder was. Sandy Koufax still has, you know, resonates with that because especially for that generation of Southern Californians in the 60s, he was a god the way Fernando was. And so the, like the younger kids, they kind of know who Sandy is, but he I don't think he'll be forgotten as quickly as the other. So but I think Fernando has transcended that sport. I mean, now we like our like my brother never saw Fernando pitching. Uh, you know, he, he's if he saw me as a kid way after he was any good. But you have YouTube, you see those clips. You have Fernando Mania at 40. You have the older generation seeing that. Then you have, you know, you're teaching those kids, the, the, the players of the Dodgers fans. You know, when I go out to the stadium, I see the little kids in 34 jerseys, like, you know, three, four years old, Chamacos, I see wearing it. They They'll ask their dad at some point or mom, hey, who's Valenzuela? Who's Fernando? And they're going to say, Mijo, this is who he was. He's like a very important person, very important player for the Dodgers, very important person for our community. And that legend then continues to go on. I wanted to provide another example because of someone who was forgotten, and that's Elgin Baylor. Because yeah. Elgin Baylor was from Jordan in a lot of ways. He really expanded the NBA and made it above the rim and, and was a lot more athletic than it had been. And no one remembers Elgin Baylor. And it's, it's, a, it's sad. It's a tragedy. So whose responsibility do you think that falls on to keep these people uh, alive? Because you're right, you know, with Ruth, yeah, you give the guy his flowers, he's great. But they're also part of me that was like, well, he didn't play against African-Americans and he didn't get play against Latin players. So, I, I mean... Bob Costas is in my fight club. All I'm just saying <laughs> is not everything that's in the past is as great. Let's give credit to th these guys that are playing right now who are playing against these ultimate athletes. But whose responsibility is that? Because, I, Eric, if they put a Valenzuela statue out there and they still don't retire his number, uh, then I just don't know what's going on. Well, this is the year to do it. Retire the number and put the statue up, honestly. And it'd be up to teams, it'd be up to the league to market that because it's important in terms of heritage and legacy. Of the, uh, they, they certainly market Jackie Robinson, so they should be marketing Fernando the same way that they're marketing Jackie Robinson. And there's, there's no excuse for it. Same with the Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, the Dodgers do have that responsibility, but hey, at, at, at a certain point, Fernando no longer belongs to the Dodgers. He belongs to the community at large. So it's we who have to tell these stories and uh, and and remember him and uh, regale him to this day. You know, I, and I think that that's definitely not going to go away in our lifetime and it's going to be uh, told down to other eras, you know, with Ruth, his legend was part of baseball, but it was also his exploits as a player. And just the fact that he was a great player. It's like, even like, you know, we, we talk about the, you know, African-American players in the Negro leagues, like who's the one there's, like the the casual baseball fan, not the diehard, the casual baseball fan will only be able to name uh, Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. But they were such amazing, amazing players 
that like even if you never Saw most people never seen their play their, their them ever played any newsreels or whatever. They just know about the histories. Pe- people like Babe Ruth would you know sing the praises of Satchel Page would actually play in exhibition games against them and, and other folks. And so I think sometimes those players just transcend the sport and the fa- it's the fans. It's important for the teams to do something, but it's also important for the fans to be able to tell everyone. It's like the whole thing with like Julio Cesar Chavez. Why is Julio Cesar Chavez a boxer still like a legend more so than Oscar De La Hoya ever will because. Uh, uh, Julio Cesar Chavez fan base is far more passionate about him. And also, uh, Chavez was just a better boxer than De La Hoya. Then De La Hoya ever, you know, can ever hope to be. Then De La Hoya's legacy can ever hope to be. I, uh, I, I my, one last one for me before we uh, we go to Juan. Um, what what would you say to anyone that's been kind of on the fence to watch this? Because obviously, you know, ESPN, for, you know, for the most part, has done pretty good with with the thirty for thirties, right? Um, then they're, you know, not a knock on them whatsoever, but, you know, to, to Gustavo's point, culturally, that's where the difference is. Right. Um, what would you say to anyone that's on the fence about watching, uh, the Fernando mania at 40 on YouTube, uh, that you guys did? I would just say, if you want to learn more about LA history, watch this. And it, it, even if you're not a sports fan, I'm sure Gustavo will be a lot more articulate about this. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll be more vulgar. No, look, if you're a Dodgers fan, and you haven't seen this, then you're an Angels fan. See the damn series. Come on. This is hit, this is Dodgers history. And, and you don't even have to care for history to care about the, 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 the narrative that we unfold. It all goes back to sports. You're going to see everyone that we talk to were sports fans, even though they might be playwrights, even though they might be politicians, even though they might be musicians, even though they might be whoever, they're all sports fans. So this is a sports documentary at its best because it shows that the tentacles of Fernando Mania going through all different parts of LA and in the process, you're going to be learning a whole bunch of stuff. So at the very least, and there's so many Dodgers fans out there. I mean, we've had great views, but we ha- I know we haven't had all the view- all the Dodgers fans out there because I still get people saying like, oh, hey, uh, I saw because I have a newsletter. Like, oh, I saw in your newsletter. You're doing this Fernando thing. It's like, how many episodes have you done? I'm like, oh, so you call yourself a Dodgers fan? Like, just check them all out. And then, yeah, go- going back to our next point. If you do care about Southern California, if you're an Angelino at heart, then see this to learn something about the history of Los Angeles that happens to be a very important part uh a very important sports history as well and, and it's easy it's on youtube or like it's for free you don't have you don't even have to go to la times for crying out loud even though we want you to just go youtube fernando mania the episodes will start popping up like that yeah i have to say i that's one of the my favorite parts of the series is the history that you guys included i did not know about the connection between jaime harin and ruben salazar and that, you know, that's something that we didn't even touch on. And I, I wish we could have spent more time on that because I was fascinated by that. I, I have to say this, you know, please don't take this the wrong way, Eric. The one thing I don't like about this series is it's so short. I wanted I wanted more. And I'm really curious to see how much stuff you had on the editing room floor. Will that ever see the light of day? Will we ever see an expanded version of this? Um, we're using every last drop that we have, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Because- oh, yeah. I, I, I just wanted those history, the, the episode on Chavez Ravine, 
And then that episode where they were talking about, you know, uh, the, the connection between Harin. I mean, Harin, to your point earlier, Gustavo, I, you're right. Harin does not give enough credit. I mean, I'm glad they they retired his mic and on there. But to me, Harin is just as important as Scully is. Uh, to that organization, and I, I would love to see them give a little more flowers. Not, to not only that, I mean, he's one of the legends of broadcasting. He's up there with Ernie Harwell and Red Barber, and all and and in all of these things. You know, God willing, he'll be Scully's uh, years because you hear Jaime, you see him. He's as healthy as he's ever been. Yeah. You know, and and not only that, not just what he means culturally and historically. He's just a great broadcaster. You hear his Spanish, like, and, and you know, especially growing up, como Mexicano, como hijo de rancheros, you're like, I don't know that word in Spanish. I gotta have, to, I have to look it up in the dictionary because he speaks so eloquently, like just, and, and he's just such an amazing guy, such an amazing guy. And yeah. Yeah, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit this. I, I listen on the radio, the first three innings with Harin and then the last three innings with Harin. In between, I do change the dial, but it's it's just a tribute to, to Harin. He is so good that even though anyone else comes on and they may be good too, they just don't compare to Harin. Harin is so smooth, it's ridiculous. But I digress. We only have a few more minutes left. Gustavo, we're not doing this to patronize you. This is yeah. something that is a regular part of our show. We end every episode like this. You are the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Eric, this question for you too, but we are taqueros here on Lead Los Podcast. So we ask all our guests this. What is your favorite taco? What is your go-to taco? And are there any spots around the city that you recommend that we go to get that taco. Go for it, Eric. Gosh, there's a Babiria place on Sepulveda Boulevard, just north of Burbank that I love. Um, it's a truck. And there's a place in Boyle Heights whose name escapes me that they just expanded into Silver Lake. El Russo. Yes, I love that place. That truck that you're talking about, the Birria, is it Teddy's Red Tacos? It's not Teddy's. Okay. I've been to Teddy's. Teddy's is great too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Teddy's. Yeah. yeah. No, El Russo, El Russo's my place. When I go up to uh, LA, it's right off the five in Boyle Heights. So I always hit them up. You know, I run a tortilla tournament for KCRW, uh, which is going to be coming up. Uh, it's going to be announced soon, four years in a row. And El Russo's flour tortillas are some of the best in Los Angeles. The chorizo, the, the, the taco de carne asada, just cut perfectly. But for it comes to tacos, geez, I mean, it, it I'm going to give a shout out to the old school. Like we would not have taco culture here in Southern California if we didn't have two icons that are still around the taquitos and avocado sauce at, at Cielito Lindo, Novera Street. And also the hard shell tacos at Meat La Cafe all the way out there in San Bernardino. The tacos that Glenn Bell ripped off to create his Taco Bell crap. But you get the OG people. They're from Jalisco. When you eat those tacos, you're, you're back in 1938. Amazing, amazing tacos. And the family's still going strong there. So what's your, what's your choice of meat, Gustavo? What is your go-to? Carne asada. It's always been it's, carne asada. It's always, yeah. always carne. What about yeah. you, Eric? Same carne asada. I will say that I grew up with a distinct disadvantage because my family always took me to Tito's Tacos. And I realized, <laughs> oh, uh, and I liked it when I was nine years old, but, uh, you know, now I've, I've come to see the air of my ways. <laughs> <laughs> They're just better hard shell tacos in the city. That's all I will say to many, that. Many of them, yeah. Uh, I will say that uh, this has so far been my favorite interview. 
uh, I like how Gustavo came in hot and he chose my list today. <laughs> and I'm, I'm all about that. But we, we were joined this week by uh, Eric Himmelsbach, Weinstein, and Gustavo Arellano of the Los Angeles Times the Los Angeles times uh, for anyone that is uh, looking to, to like they, like they said, brush up themselves on some Los Angeles history, Fernando mania on YouTube at 40, uh, Fernando mania at 40. There's eight episodes. 12 is what uh, the total is going to be. And uh, beginning July 22nd, uh, there's going to be four mini episodes. Correct, Eric? Yes. And uh, for anyone that wants to follow you guys, where or find you on the interwebs or whatever, where can they find you guys? Go to my website, gustavariano.org. You could sign up to my newsletter there. That's where I post all my articles that I've done for the week, mostly for the LA Times, but I do some other things as well. Uh, then if you don't like newsletters, I only send it a week. Follow me on Instagram at Gustavo underscore Ariano and all the desmadre flows from there. I have an out-of-date website called uh, dallyboy.net, V-A-L-L-E-Y-B-O-Y.net. And I'm on Twitter at EricHW1, but I'm not a powerful social media. So, <laughs> Eric's an adult. I'm not. I just, <laughs> I just, if you see there, it's just a, a weird, a weird uh, slog of gift wars, me rambling about in and out and low quads and me, me, me calling out fans who ask me questions that I already answered, but they obviously don't um, read my stuff. So I get very pissed off about that. I will say I live for Gustavo using the F-bomb and with, with several extra U's. <laughs> Fuck. Exactly. Any, any, uh, any time that, uh, that I can catch Gustavo coming in hot, you best believe that I'm going to find it. And I'm going to, th- that alone is enough to get me to follow. Oh. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> Thank um, you. No, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Well done on, uh, on, on what you guys have dropped so far. You guys are fucking killing it. There's no other way to put it. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't, uh, there's no other way to compliment it. It's one of the better, uh, better things out there. And again, no knock on ESPN. Um, it's, it's just a well, well put together everything. And, uh, again, thank you guys for the time. We really appreciate you guys joining, uh, you guys joining us. No problem. Gracias. De nada. We'll see you guys down the road. There you have it. Huge thanks to Eric Himmelsbach Weinstein and Gustavo Arellano for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, please go follow them, subscribe, whatever the whatever they got going. Those are two really good dudes. They have amazing, amazing content and just overall just great stuff. Go check them out. As always, thank you for the support on this here podcast. We really appreciate it. If you haven't, please subscribe, give us a review, give us the feedback, yell at us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Bleedlos Podcast. But in the meantime, thank you a ton for listening to this week's episode, and we will catch you next week. Stay safe and go Dodgers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.